Good evening, listeners, and welcome to the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast. My name is Dark, and my guest tonight is Morgan Shalou, and we will be discussing her novel, Hunter, the second book in her Unwoven Tapestry series. She will also be reading a segment from that same novel, but first, let's chat with Morgan for a bit. Welcome, Morgan, and thank you so much for joining me on the Strong Women's Strange Worlds podcast tonight. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Dark. Thank you so much. How are you? Awesome. Not doing too bad. It's a little foggy, no snow, kind of concerned, but we're good. Yeah, we're hitting the 80s down here, so. We're not supposed to have fog. Our <laughs> flowers are not supposed to be reblooming. It's just a little unsettling, a little creepy. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourself and the genres you like to write. So I've been writing since I was very young. I remember getting very frustrated with a co-op that I was in uh, because we were writing a play together and it was taking far too long, in my opinion. So I went home and I wrote the whole thing by hand uh, in an evening and turned it into the instructor, the theater instructor, and she basically used that whole script. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah, it worked out great. But I just, I honestly have been writing forever and can't imagine not doing it, even when there are big, long stretches of time when I feel like I can't for any reason, you know, mental health or job busyness, anything like that. I I am and have always been a writer, so <laughs> uh, I prefer uh, fantasy, mostly mid-fantasy, but I'm kind of working vaguely on some high fantasy now and have a little bit of low fantasy, so just kind of mostly everything in that genre, but uh, yeah. <laughs> nice. So tell us a little bit about the story and set up the scene that we're going to be hearing tonight. Sure. So this is a scene about this young character who finds himself a prisoner, somewhat allowed to roam about, but sort of put to learning from the antagonist and uh, set to chores to kind of keep him busy and where everybody can keep an eye on him. And so he's trying to figure out how to get along and how to survive and has his watchful guardian, Thomas, Thomas Oates, um, whom he does not, with whom he does not get along. I kind of I would picked up on that, yeah. A captive, you know, this guy watching you all the time. <laughs> awesome. So we'll give it a listen and then we'll come back and we'll keep talking. Wonderful, thank you. Are you done? Thomas Oates arrived at Ruben's elbow. He glared at Travis, who stared back, unintimidated and unimpressed. No, I'm not, Ruben told him sharply. Too bad, you've got chores and assignments. Reuben bit the inside of his cheek and rose to his feet. Oates had been cowed for a little while after their fight, but appeared to have regained his bad attitude. I'll mind the plate, son, Travis said, and we'll speak again. Oates led Reuben downstairs toward the room where he'd been measured for clothes and given his haircut. He hadn't returned since then, and the area was unfamiliar. What am I doing today? Laundry. The end of the hall led to another door and more stairs down. Reuben shuddered in the dim light as the creeping darkness set his hairs to attention. Through another room, he felt a sudden rise in humidity. Oates led them into a brightly lit space filled with steam and copper pipes. Water was everywhere, warm under his bare feet, cold dripping down the walls and from the ceiling. Men and women, all of them old but hardy, conversed in loud voices as they agitated cloth and scrubbed in acrid soaps and bleach. A man marched to bar their way and looked Reuben up and down. What is it? he demanded with a sneer. He used to do chores. Oates always seemed intimidated by these people nearly as much as Reuben was. Not here, the Lord says. He's not my Lord. Oates shifted from foot to foot, unsure of what to do. 
Reuben leaned to see past the man blocking the way. A dozen people were watching him through the steam, sleeves rolled up high, sweat on their faces. The cheerful mood had shifted abruptly. What's special about laundry? He asked curiously. I mean, why is it different from dishes or sweeping? The man looked down at him distastefully. We don't want you here. I don't want to be here either, but it's just chores, right? The man crossed his arms petulantly without answer. Wilting trees and flattened hills. Reuben half turned uh, round to see that Travis from the dining room had followed them and was now lounging in the doorway. Oates was glaring at both him and the laundryman now. Boy's got a merit in the question. You ever done laundry before? Tra Travis asked him. I've done nearly everything, I think. Indentured since I was little, Reuben explained. Travis chuckled and came forward to clap a hand on his shoulder. Go on, everyone back to your tubs. Pull your sleeves up, boy. Parker, calm the storms. Be out the way. I said we don't want him here, Parker sneered. Not once you here, yet still you stand, Travis retorted. Parker snapped his fingers and snarled a gibberish sentence of consonants. Travis slapped him straight across the face, startling the man from his fury. Stop acting a fool. Reuben, stunned by the actions around him, felt the pressure of two hands on his shoulders. They navigated him around a shocked and angry Parker and passed the first several tubs surrounded by people, all giving him one nasty look or another. Travis deposited him at a tub near the back. The people around it quickly vacated to others, but Travis ignored them and joined Reuben at the work. Travis didn't speak as he and Reuben soaked and scrubbed the clothes in the near-boiling water. As before, the chores were a nearly pleasant familiarity in so hostile a place. Reuben set to the work with a will. Unconcerned by the effort involved, even while sweat dripped down his face and his arms and back ached. He didn't know how long they worked, but when Travis called a halt, the last of the clothes stewed and cleaned, the rest of the workers were gone. They drained and wiped down the tub, wringing and hanging the last sopping cloths to dry in the outer room, where a clever system of piping let in fresh air and kept the humidity at bay. Then, with a small wave, Travis left. Reuben looked around, saw no escort, and so made his slow way upstairs. He wondered where Oates was, but none of the few elders that he passed in the halls stopped him or said anything at all. He found his room and found another set of clothes waiting on his bed. Relieved, he changed and dropped the wet set in the bathing room hamper. It wasn't yet time for dinner, not that he was especially hungry anyway. As he started back toward his room to wait, a realization stopped him. He started walking again, let his feet lead the way, mind blank except for his jangling nerves providing horrible scenarios periodically. With nowhere else to be, maybe he was allowed outside. Perhaps he could practice his magic, seeing as he was getting training from the smiling man himself. Reuben descended a set of stairs with stiff knees and marveled again at the sides of the mansion. Who did it belong to? Were they still alive? If they were, and they were clearly rich, they'd be close to the royal family. Reuben was deeply uncomfortable to realize someone supporting the blood mages might be so close to the leaders of his country. Unless the king did know... He stopped that thought in his tracks, the idea too abhorrent. His mind was spinning at the possibility, but came to a sudden attention when he heard a door open behind him. Thomas Oates stepped into the hall and looked his way. It took Oates a minute to realize who he was seeing, and then his face turned a dark red. Where are you going? He demanded. Seeing no reason to lie, Reuben answered, Outside? You're not allowed. Are you sure? Oates looked away, the question clearly catching him off guard. Reuben was surprised to realize that Oates' eyes were wet, his nose red. Were you crying? he asked. Oates' face snapped back to him and his hands curled into fists. Reuben saw a burst of color materialize in his vision to surround the now clearly furious man. Oates advanced and Reuben retreated in near equal measure. What does it matter to you? Oates snarled. 
It it doesn't. I was just asking. Why do you care? Reuben took another step back. I'm sorry, I didn't mean anything by it. I'm sure. You couldn't understand. You were born with magic, more than anyone could ever want or need. What makes you better than me? Nothing. Oates advanced again. Nothing, he agreed. Nothing, but here you stand, you and your costless magic. You ruin everything. I should kill you where you stand. Reuben bumped painfully into a wall, and Oates continued forward. Trapped and afraid, Reuben put his hands up and felt the familiar warmth of fire build in his palms. Oates stopped and sneered despite the obvious fear in his eyes and the yellow staining his aura. You'd never stand up to me without that. Probably not, Reuben agreed as his anger boiled once more in his stomach. His face felt warm. But I thought anyone could learn blood magic, so use that. No? What's wrong with you, then? Face me if you want to try. The red in Oates' face turned purple and spittle flew from his lips as he snarled, You don't know anything about me! You don't know anything about me either! Reuben put his fear and fury into the flames, letting them build as they wanted. The angry young man looked terrified, but stood his ground. Lightning cracked through the air over Oates' head. He flinched and staggered backward. Reuben advanced on him. I haven't done anything to you. Just leave me alone. Oates roared with promised violence, couldn't come forward. A wall of snapping flames and twisting lightning had built across the floor and up the walls, rolling hungrily toward him. Reuben snarled, a small part of him reveling in the man's fear, even as the rest of him hated it and hated himself. The walls shook and groaned with strain. Loud cracks ran across short sections of the floor, and Oates tripped. Reuben studied the young man's empathic aura, a mix of colors swirling around him like steam. He reached out and grasped with yellow so thick and viscous and drew it toward him. He saw it expand and grow. Oates' eyes widened in horror. Reuben blew low on the cloud like feeding a campfire. The color grew thicker, denser, vivid. Oates screamed as the yellow fear won out over his indigo anger. He scrambled backward and tried to gain his feet as the fire and lightning closed toward him. The walls and floor tilted and shifted and made balance a chore, except for Reuben stood in an island of raging calm. As Oates staggered and sprinted and finally disappeared down the hall, Reuben released the magic to fade away. The energy coursing through him drained at the same time, but he still wanted to run after his tormentor and pound his face into a bloody mess with his bare fists. He wanted outside to sprint and keep sprinting until he couldn't breathe and collapsed in the dirt. He wanted to scream and pound the ground with his fists and feet until they refused to obey him. Instead, he sank to the floor, the once endless well of emotion replaced by numbness. He welcomed it, even as it scared him. It didn't take long for a dozen elders to appear in the hall, all of them with expressions of worry or anger. They kept at a distance from him, too afraid to get close. He managed to look up at them and, in their faces, saw the people of his own town. People who had raised him, punished him for foolishness, encouraged his efforts, trained him in his trade, even bullied him. Just people. Tears finally fell, and he buried his face in his hands as sobs racked his small frame. His knees drew up to his chest, and he wrapped his arms around them, weeping shamefully. He wanted to go home. He wanted to just disappear. He wanted his mother. No, he wanted Donovan. Arms closed around him and jerked away, afraid they were taking him back to the hated cell or worse. It took him a moment to recognize the embrace. How long had it been since someone had held him? When he stopped the instinctive struggle to get away, the arms gathered him tighter and held him close. His tears flowed harder and his stomach heaved to bring them up from the unplumbed depths. Another set of hands rubbed his back tenderly, encouragingly, and someone murmured motherly things in his ear. Ever so slowly, he began to calm. 
The tears subsided, leaving him with hiccups. He groaned, and a woman chuckled into his hair. Her weathered hands helped him to his feet. Someone else pressed a handkerchief into his hands. He scrubbed at his face and held his breath until the hiccups stopped. You were right now, love. He started to nod and then shrugged helplessly. When he finally managed to look up, he saw that the crowd had gone, leaving him with only a couple of older women, one with her arms still around his shoulders. She gave him another squeeze. Thomas acting a prat. Reuben winced. Sore that one. Not his fault, not your fault. You're both young and he's anger itself. You were bound not to get along. I didn't mean to, Reuben whispered. All right, darling, we'll have words. Keep your chin up. Oh, the other woman said, distracted. Reuben looked toward the doorway and saw the smiling man lounging against the wall as though enjoying a play. His evident amusement cheapened the moment and Reuben felt his face flush as embarrassment took root once more. The woman took a step away from him. The smiling man laughed once and strolled away, humming. A shudder shook Reuben's frame. I'm sorry if you're in trouble, he whispered. He's not our leader, the first woman said angrily, though she kept her voice low. We tolerate his presence because our lady says he's necessary. Were he not? <laughs> she shook her fists at her sides. Shush, the second lady snapped. None of that. You should go back to your room, she told her Reuben. I'll send someone with a plate for you. I imagine some word will skip about, avoiding every puddle of truth, and it might be best if you weren't standing the brunt of it until reason and calm reigns anew. Reuben nodded tiredly. They walked together to his room, an awkward silence lingering until they reached his door. Laren, the first woman said, gesturing at herself. Her hair still had a tinge of brown amongst the gray. The second woman, shorter, named herself Beth. Thanks, I'm Reuben. He blushed. I guess you already knew that. Laren smiled. Get some rest, son. He went to the window and looked out over the fields, aching to walk through the tall and distant grass, swaying in a light breeze. The fight played through his head. He'd sworn he wouldn't overreact like that again, but barely a day had gone by before he'd broken that promise. He couldn't stop using, couldn't stop using magic, could he? How would he learn? How would he get free? What would the smiling man do if he refused? What would Reuben do next? Reuben laid his head against the cool sill. He'd shaken the walls, the floor, for the first time. There'd been a vague and confusing connection to the stone in the hall, a sort of ancient heaviness through his bones, but now there was nothing. The idea of digging his fingers through the stone wall and climbing to the ground flitted through his mind, but it was pushed aside by the image of the smiling man's knitting wound. Reuben wanted to learn to do that. He wanted to learn proper control and abilities that could change the course of the war, if only he could master it quickly enough. Then he saw the cloud of emotion again, saw it billow, and heard Oates scream. He'd never heard a sound like that before, and he'd liked the feeling that had come with it. Never in his life had he felt so powerful. But remembering it now made him sick. Was there truly no cost to his magic? How do you stop using magic if you possess the ability? As we've just heard, it isn't as easy as it sounds, especially when emotions run high. And what an interesting magical ability to be able to manipulate the colors of one's aura. It sounds like Thomas got more than he bargained for when he went after Reuben. So at first in this piece, it sounds like your main character, Thomas Oates and Reuben, maybe might get along. But as the scene progresses a bit, turns out they're not the best of friends. Right. No, How? They, uh... I'm sorry. How difficult was it to set up that aggressive bullying scene? That must have been a little 
you know, do I go down this path? Do I write it or? Um, it wasn't difficult at all to set up the the bullying scene. I I am very much a pantser rather than a plotter in my writing, and Thomas kind of showed up. Thomas Oates kind of showed up as just a jerk, just a piece of work, <laughs> and um, so he his animosity I feel was was fairly fairly simple for me to write, but Ruben's responses to him were difficult because. Uh, his character development, I feel like this, one of the reasons I chose this scene was because I feel that his character development really changes up in who he sees himself, you know, you know to, sees himself to be, how he wants to be perceived, who he looks toward as a role model, things like that. Because I was, I was reading this, I was like, oh, you know, and you can just feel the tension build between them and you know something is just going to break. Yeah. And that that was yeah, and that was just one very, very visually stimulating. Thank you. You say you're a panster. Is that is that panster, pants? yeah. Without yeah. the T, yeah, panster. <laughs> what was your process for this story? Because I know with magical plots, you kind of have to keep a very good eye on the details. It's so funny you ask because I, I tell my friends all the time, I'm not a visual thinker at all. I, I struggle to visualize. And so this story, this is the second book in the trilogy, and this story actually started out as a writing uh, idea on how to get myself to describe things better. And, and most of what I wrote in the very beginning was, it was gone. It was 20 pages of describing this town, and I kept very little of it. You know, it's not important. But the story came together kind of on accident. And uh, just one thing led into another, and I wanted it to be interesting for me, and so it got to the end, and I finished in the first book, and I said, oh my gosh, I, I think this is a book one. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so it, it kind of came together that way, and, and the second book came together very quickly. So I, I do struggle with plots. I It's funny, I, I really didn't know how the whole trilogy would end until I was about ten pages from it, and uh, you know, I, I had some ideas, of course, but... Um, I did a lot of going back and looking at what I'd written and seeing, oh, I left that thread kind of dangling, that could go somewhere, or, ooh, if I change this sentence here, then maybe it's a little bit more exciting and I can build off of that. So it worked out, I think. <laughs> I got a trilogy out of it. <laughs> I was just going to say, you're, you're working on the third book now? Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, the you know draft is finished and it's with my publicist and he's you know my my editor's working on it so I'm waiting to get uh, some edits back to work on that and it'll come out shortly after that so I'm uh, the dreaded the dreaded red scribbles yes I enjoy I know a lot of people don't like editing I enjoy editing it I I get to go back to it and see you know it, it's not for me it's not a judgmental process so much as a oh I I did this poorly as it is ooh how do I want that to sound. Is that still consistent? Oh, I can tell that I got, I was excited here because I, I was writing very quickly and yeah, I made some mistakes or I didn't capture the character's voice as well. So how do I want to clean that up and really put it in their, you know, in their language, in their scene? Oh, I have too many adjectives here. Why did I use the word that many times? You know, it's just, it's fun. I, I enjoy editing. <laughs> You're probably one of the few. A few, yes, yes. I, I believe I am unique in that. <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like they're treating Ruben like a slave. Now, is that 
part of their whole training or has he done something or fallen into something he shouldn't have? No, he, he hasn't so much fallen into something he shouldn't have um, been kidnapped into something that he'd <laughs> rather not be. I mean, you know, uh, as as could happen to very, very powerful children. But more than anything, the my antagonist, the smiling man, is very devious, if I need to say so myself. He's very cunning. And so the act of constantly putting him around these other people who have a lot of animosity toward him, but having him work alongside them, and I mean, it's chores, and everybody does chores, you know, they just, they come up, you knock them out, um, many hands make light work, and they see that not only is he willing to do the work, because he doesn't really have another choice, but I mean, he is an easygoing kind of kid, stuck in this unknown world, and so he's working alongside them, they're working alongside him, and that hatred and that loathing that they have for him and his people, they almost get bound together, you know, hey, he's not so bad. Maybe the rest of them suck, but you know, he's okay. That relationship there. So tell us a little more about the overall story. It takes place over three books? Yes. Yes. So this is book two. So it is a, uh, I, I hesitate to say, you know, typical middle book, because that sounds a little bit less than I like, but... <laughs> But there's a lot of transition here and, you know, a lot of uh, restructure as far as the the voice. Uh, in the first book, the, the voice is Donovan Rudd, the main character of the trilogy. And in the second book, I split into three different points of view, which is Donovan Whitman, who is our, our bard and cle clever man, and uh, then I have Reuben. And so you sort of see the different situations that each of them is going through and how you know, how everything lines up when they each discover a piece of the puzzle. I actually, on my plot board, I know I said I don't plot, but I did have to, towards the end, I had to make sure that certain things lined up. So I got my little index cards out. So I managed to make sure that in each of their chapters, one right after the other, a piece of information kind of comes to them. And it's different for each of them, so the, the reader gets to discover that along with them, but also put together the larger picture. But it's still missing some pieces, so <laughs> away. But yeah, so... There's, there's just a lot going on in this one that I feel gives a nice transition into the into the third book, into the conclusion and the climax, and you, you see a lot of things sort of building up that kinetic energy. and it's, I like it. It's exciting. <laughs> awesome. What was the hardest part about writing the first two novels, or even with the third novel? The hardest part was definitely the plot, because <laughs> I did not have one. I'm very jealous of people who can who can plot. I feel I don't struggle as much with character creation. I feel like that's one of my better abilities. You know, we all have our, our strengths and weaknesses. So I'd say one of the bigger struggles that I had was um, character voice, trying to make sure that not everybody ended up sounding like me. And some people are allowed to have different opinions and <laughs> no incorrect conclusions, I guess. Uh, you know, but it's one of the like, one of those situations where you you find out what's going to happen next or you know what's going to happen and so you want your characters to know but it's like no they, they don't get to know yet <laughs> so that was that was definitely a struggle but also just making sure that they aren't that, that the conflict is enough i actually had an entire character that i had to remove i was uh -uh. halfway finished with with this book with hunter and i realized that this other character was very fun to write but they were removing all of the danger for various various characters and so I had to go through and remove him completely and it was very frustrating but 
but ultimately worth it. I think it's a much better story because of that, because you want you want your characters to be in peril, you want them to be in danger, and you want that moment of high emotion. I think every writer has had that point where, yeah, they've got to remove some element or a character or whatnot from it. I, I've actually, in this whole story, had to remove two characters total. <sighs> it's not easy. Because <laughs> the, the other one was a smaller part, but he was trickled through. <laughs> I had to go find his name everywhere, his reference everywhere. That's what I like about my writing program. I use Scrivener, and I've got a list of characters, and I just click on it and try to remember, because I will rename characters as we're going through. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, and or even names for towns. I remember as a, as a little kid, I was working on a uh, on my epic, which I will someday write, uh, <laughs> because it, it's brilliant, but, you know, it started out with a 10-year-old's view of the world. It's a little, little more limited, but... This town uh, that Reuben is from is called Philippa, and it's funny because somebody called me out like, oh, is it because your husband's name is Philip? And I was like, nope, nope, he's only got one L. He's very strict about that. This was the name that I've been using since I was 10 for a town, so congratulations. <laughs> it's still there. But I, I was pulling in my brothers and sisters' names like, uh, yep, there's one. Speaking of that, have you modeled any of your characters after someone in real life? Uh, I, I haven't. I've only done that one time, or rather two or three times, but it keeps being the same person that I, I model characters off of. But n generally speaking, no. I might start out with an idea, with a quirk, with a, a view, you know, like I said, not super visual, but just sort of a, a, an emotional connection. And I want to recreate that in a character. But I find that if you try too hard to model a character on someone, they lose that life, that spark of life that is truly their own. And the decisions that they make are overlaid with the decisions that this real person might make and it, it can kind of muddy things. But I did have to reach out to my friend on more than one occasion and send her some writing and be like, hi, this person keeps being you. <laughs> I don't, I just need, is this okay that people are gonna know? And she's like, yeah, it's fine, whatever. Like, she's just really cool and I love you and I just, it, I don't know why it keeps happening. <laughs> This is a book of magic and fantasy. Yes. This genre is so popular. What have you done or created to maybe make it stand out a little bit more than all the rest? I hope that I have created a magic system that is somewhat different. I really love magic systems that have a cost to them because all things in in life have some kind of balance and I like hard magic systems as opposed to soft magic systems so kind of being able to know exactly how things work and what what that cost may be is a fun mental exercise for me. Uh, I like to read it so I'm, that's what I want to write because I want to enjoy what I'm writing. You know, I also hope that my my characters stand apart accidentally if i if i'm feel ever feeling poorly about myself i can read some of whitman's lines and know that i am quite clever sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so that feels nice you know some of some of my more poetic and silly uh side comes out in him and and that's fun so i hope things like that you know set set my work apart but also i hope just my style sets it apart from other fantasy i mean that's hard to say because there's like you say there's so much yeah across the genre, you really, 
you really can get very specific in, in what you like and sometimes find it hard to branch out into other fun things to read and, and find. But I like to have darker themes because I feel like we as people generally try and stay more positive, more upbeat, more, you know, and enjoy the world. And there's no doubt that reality has a lot of darkness to it. And we all have to balance that. You know, you can't just landlord paint white over. Right. Hope that nobody sees it. But, but at the same time, like, what do you, what do you do if you have a horrible trauma, a horrible traumatic event happen in your life? What do you, what do you do? You, you can't just say, oh, you get over it. That is what happens. Yeah. You move past it. Things change, you know, you change as a person, your world changes, but we are made to kind of deal with those sorts of things and, and move through them. But it's it's finding that balance, you know, between recognizing and respecting, but not dwelling. Yeah. And I, I love that, you know, all of my different philosophies come out, I'll be writing along and I'll kind of be surprised at myself as I have a character saying some words that I really hadn't thought too deeply on. Apparently I have feelings on that and I kind of have to take a moment and make sure it's actually them speaking, you know. But yeah, that's that's what I hope people see that sets me apart. I've been obsessed with rabbit holes for the last few months. I've fallen down quite a few in my last two novels. So I have to ask everyone, what is a rabbit hole that you fell down when you're researching for these novels? Oh my gosh, that is so difficult. I... I... I don't know of one for this story in particular, but is it is it all right if I share one for for a, one of the high fantasy novels that I'm working on now? Um, again, I don't quite have a plot yet. I'm I'm doing some world building, but I am not great with uh, deities with deity structures, and so I've been reading some books of like African proverbs and you know things like that, sort of creation myths. And then I started thinking about you know man versus nature plots while I was reading that, and then that made me wonder about uh, uh, continental drift, which made me start wondering about volcanic islands, uh, because, you know, how fast those things happen, and then in studying volcanic islands, I wonder how quickly they could be populated by flora and fauna, and in doing that, I learned a little bit more about uh, marine iguanas, and then I accidentally now have a race of iguana folk. And all of that happened in the span of two hours. <laughs> right? It was amazing. I came home from the coffee shop and my husband was like, oh, how'd it go? I was like, it was very productive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm basing them off of this culture and that culture and I'm going to sort of have this twist to it. And he's like, what? <laughs> so it's very exciting. Yeah, the rabbit holes are, are a blast. Absolutely. Rabbit holes are awesome. I love it. Yeah, this is how I make small talk at parties. Like, hey, uh, what's going on? Not much. Did you know that most forensic evidence is actually worthless and a lot of people are incarcerated for, on, uh, for no reason because uh, they think that this is much more important than it is? Anyway, how's your drink? <laughs> well, thank you so much, Morgan, for joining me tonight. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. And I hope that when your third novel comes out in the series, we can do this again. Yes, it would be a pleasure, absolutely. That'll be a the book is called Magus, so it'll be book three of the Unwoven Tapestry. Awesome. So you have a good night. You too. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Darkness lurks in all of us, whether we want it to or not. But how we react to it determines whether or not it will grow. Traumatic events 
like the situations that happened in Morgan's story, can be the foundation for some nasty stuff. But hopefully, the characters she's created will guide themselves to heal instead of allowing it to take over. That's all I have for tonight, listeners. And again, thank you for joining me tonight. And make sure to check out our website at www.strongwomenstrangeworlds.weebly.com for more strong women and other underrepresented gender identity authors of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Good night.